Our sermon text is from Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, the parable of the persistent widow. Um, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me. This summer we've been doing a series on prayer, trying to get us to pray more. Uh, just The big idea is just pray more than we already are. And, and what we've been doing is calling prayer reverse thunder. Because that's, that's the picture we have in Revelation 8, that God hears our prayers, they drift up to heaven, and it comes thundering down to earth as God's will is done uh, through what we pray. And it's a, an amazing amount of honor and dignity given to us who believe that our prayers matter. And last week, right, we, I gave the background. So this is part two of what we looked at last week on the kingdom of God and, and why Jesus tells us a parable that we need to be motivated to pray. And so the big idea was while we wait for Jesus to come back and bring justice, he tells us not to be distracted, to not give up. And then he tells a story, right? If you're going to if you're going to ask Jesus, what's your best shot? Why should I pray? How are you going to get me to pray? He tells a story. And he says, "Here's what I want you to do. Listen to an unrighteous job, a guy who's not good at his job." An unrighteous judge who's bad at his job. <laughs> and so let's read it, and I'll explain what that means. It says, Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and it's absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning with all kinds of cares and complaints and concerns. And we want you to intervene with what's wrong with our world, with us. And so this morning, I, help, I ask that you would help us by your spirit understand how to wait as we continue to pray. And so open our eyes and stop our ears. Show us how the judge of the earth became like us and was judged on our behalf and is now fighting for us. And may that keep us praying. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Wouldn't it be great if prayer worked like that? Like you could just nag him until you got what you want. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be really easy. You just keep going to God every day. God, give me this, give me this. I want, I want, I want. And eventually because he's so annoyed and he wants a little peace and quiet in the heavenly throne room. He said, fine, just here you go. You know, go on your way. Right. That's kind of the picture that we want it to be true, and it's almost the d our default mode, isn't it? Um, 
I think of Bruce Almighty. Remember the movie where uh, Morgan Freeman playing God? I mean, it's complete blasphemy, but whatever. It's, it's po- this is our culture. This is what they're, they're thinking. And Bruce Almighty is this man whose life is absolutely miserable. His career stalls. He gets fired. Um, he's yelling and cursing God. He's screaming, well, you know, God, what, you stink at your job. He gets hit by a car, and he wakes up, and God says, all right, you're complaining. How about you try and be me for a while? And there's this great scene in the movie where he's experiencing what it's like to receive millions upon millions of prayer requests through email because, you know, that's how God gets them. And it just keeps coming. You know, he, just, he opens the inbox, and it keeps growing and growing. <laughs> and he exclaims, what a bunch of whiners. This is going to suck up my whole life. And so he hits reply all yes and just goes on his way. And you can just watch the whole as everyone gets their prayers answered, all the, the havoc and destruction that cause, causes. But the, I mean, it's, it's similar to the picture here, right, of the persistent widow. She keeps going and she keeps going. Just, she wants something, whatever it might be, good or bad. And she keeps showing up at the judge's home, at the gym, at his workplace. She's, you know, I'm here again. When are you going to do something? And he says, so she'll stop bothering me, then I'll give her justice. And it's actually a boxing metaphor. So she'll stop beating me down. And it's, it's literally, so she'll stop punching me in the eye with her requests. Give me what I want, right? She's, she's nailing him. And he says, all right, I'll, gi- I'll give in. I, I give up. And unfortunately, that's not really how prayer works. You, you, you probably already knew that. But the prayer isn't punching God in the face till you get what you want. Um, or to, to nag him, to, to continually keep going until he caves in. Right? We all come today specifically with prayer requests that we have prayed that we're still waiting and hoping and longing for God to answer. It's just the reality in which we live. That's not, that can't be what Jesus is teaching. Besides, you know, what, what, if God always said yes, what do we, you know what that would make us, right? What do you call kids whose parents never say no? <laughs> Go ahead, Nick. Spoiled, yeah. Spoiled, rotten, insert whatever word you want to use, but you're in church. <laughs> All right? That, that's how prayer works. <laughs> so it, prayer, it is not just telling God what you want and waiting for him to answer repeatedly. It's more than that. So there has to be more. I mean, I know in your Bible, at least in mine, it says this is the parable of the persistent widow. I want to try and convince you that that's distracting think it's more about the unrighteous judge, and, th- and I want to try and convince you of that. So let's look at it. If you look at verse 1, Jesus says, he told, it says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's, when he says always, it's a command, right? It's, it's necessary. It's the same word used to, to describe the gospel, the prayer is necessary, just as it was necessary for Jesus to die for you. That's 1725. He had to. Right? He was told to, to die for us, and Jesus wanted to. It was something he couldn't avoid. 
it was something he wanted to do. It was all about the motivation. And Jesus is trying to show us it's the same thing for us, those who believe, that, that we will want to pray. And he, he knows, we talked about this last week, that we need help with that. We need help with our motivation. So we get tired, we get distracted, we get discouraged. He says, I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to give up. Always pray. He's saying, don't, don't walk away from God just because you're not getting an answer right now and he's making you wait. Even if your eyes are dim with tears and you're just tired of waiting. Right. And so let's, let's dig into this. How does this parable, that's what it is. This is Jesus' motivational speech to get you to pray when the answers are not coming. When you keep knocking, you keep knocking, and the, I know Jesus said, knock and the door will be answered, but it seems like the door is shut, and it's not opening when you want it to open. So how is Jesus going to get us to pray and persevere? So you can, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin you can follow along. And kids, I, I forgot to mention, we have a, an outline sheet for you in the back. If you are ages seven and up, it's a clipboard. Feel free to, all right, we, I see you, thanks. <laughs> First point, th there's a context to the parable, and last sermons was, last week's sermon was the bigger, longer version, but I think it's helpful to review because, well, I forget what I said yesterday, so I'm sure you don't remember everything I said last week. But that, that the world in which we pray is the world in which God's kingdom has already come in Jesus, but it hasn't finished. We're still waiting. Right? That, that you and I as Christians, those who believe, we live our entire lives waiting in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Right? He came and he, he dealt with internal evil and sin on the cross, and that's just part one of this whole plan to make everything new when he comes at the end take away all external evil, all suffering, all sorrow. Right, so Jesus' kingdom has already come. This is the world in which you pray. And so here's what I want you to do. Think about it this way. This will help, help understand why Jesus tells us this parable. Right, we looked at it last week. That the Old Testament has these over-the-top, beautiful, magnificent heart achingly, I wish these were true right now, promises that well, God showed his servants these things will happen in the future. So like Isaiah, he says, I know, I, he showed Isaiah that a new heaven and new earth will come. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more death. Uh, lions are going to lie down with lambs. You're going to, enemies are going to be friends. Everything unnatural about this world will go away. Sin and selfishness will be dealt with. Right? It's Isaiah 53. It was 800 years before Jesus came that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. Right? You've got these beautiful snapshots all the way through the Old Testament saying it will come. And from Isaiah's perspective, it was all future. The 800 years before Jesus came, it's kind of like he saw a whole series of mountain peaks in the future coming called the kingdom of God. This, this will be a good metaphor to help you understand this. So think about it this way. 
you've probably had this experience if you've gone hiking. You, you, you're walking and you're, you're coming up on the hills and they all seem like they're really close until you get to the top of that first hill and you realize that the next hill is a lot further away than you wish it were because you're tired and you wish it was. And that, that's kind of the picture that Isaiah got. That he saw a whole series of mountain peaks of these promises of God's kingdom coming through one person, a Messiah, a servant, a king. And Jesus' first coming is that first mountain that sin dealt with. And Isaiah had no idea that the amount of time that would come between Jesus dying on the cross and all the bullies of the world being punished, evil being completely wiped away, so you think about it this way, we live our lives in a world in between those two mountain peaks, and we're on a journey. And that's where this widow is, as we look at this text, that she is living in a world waiting for things to be fixed, knowing that justice is a possibility but she's not experiencing any of it right now. That's why Jesus tells this parable. Because he's saying, how do you and I continue to pray when our answers seem so far away? It just hurts. How do you persevere? And Jesus tells us this parable. Let's look at it. It's the widow. It's a widow begging for justice. This is you and I. This is the annoying widow in verses 2 through 5. She embodies what it looks like for a human being to want Jesus' kingdom to come. She's like me. She's like you. Yeah, I want my sin to be dealt with, but really... I want my circumstances to be much more comfortable than they really are. I have a problem, whatever it might be, and I want it fixed. I want it fixed now. And she's a graphic picture because a widow is someone who is absolutely by necessity consumed with the need to survive, especially in Jesus' day. She was completely alone. She knows the agony of loss. She knows what it is to need. And then here is somebody who would achingly long for the days of the Son of Man, like we read in chapter 17, wanting Jesus to show up and dramatically give her justice. Think about it. In Jesus' day, it was hard to get much lower on the social ladder than a widow. If you were a foreigner and a widow, then you were at the bottom. And this is somebody who's lost her husband in a world where women weren't, didn't have the freedom that we have today. There was no social security. There was no welfare. I mean, her husband would have been her provider, her protector, her future. Her, her, any children, any son she would have had would have been her, her inheritance. I mean, to be a widow... was to be completely alone, especially the widow that Jesus describes. Because if she's going by herself to this judge, that means she has nobody to fight for her. 
Because in, in an ordinary circumstance, she would have a family member, a, a man, a father or a brother, or a son, somebody, to, to try and fix whatever's going on, whatever it might be. So she, she's either barren, never been able to have children, or she's lost her son. I mean, this is about as bad as it gets. And in, in that, that world, they had this mistaken belief, uh, the ancient Jewish worldview, we were just talking about this with the deacons, that when the funeral happened for her husband, women would lead the funeral procession because they believed, um, they took Genesis 1 to say that women brought evil and suffering into the world so they should lead the funeral procession to the grave. It's just awful. I mean, all the way through the Bible, Adam's blamed. It's the man's fault. So just to clarify that, that's not what the Bible teaches. And in her world, people will be talking. If, if women, if she's at the front of this processional, leading the funeral for her husband, people are going to wonder, what did she do to deserve this? Is this justice? Is she being punished for some kind of evil thing that she did? I mean, the major assumption in their worldview is that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between the bad things we do and how God responds to it. Someone had to be blamed. It's, you just have a picture of somebody who's desperate, who's shamed, who's got nothing to lose. I mean, maybe a bully took her land, took her home. Maybe her husband was murdered. Maybe she was assaulted. I don't really, we don't really know. Jesus leaves that up to our imagination. But it's this person who's her whole body, all of her senses, her whole life is saying, I need this, this to be answered. And so here's the point. The widow's us. I mean, the you remember what we talked about last week, that, that we live our lives consumed with marriage and work and family and career. And we, God, we have these prayers for justice, for these things to be fixed. And she's putting a body on that for us. And for us to be like the widow, it's just saying we have a need and we want God to fix it. This, this is what shapes our prayer lives ordinarily. She needs an advocate. She needs a judge. And because she, she has no one to fight for, she just annoys the bejeepers out of this judge. And she keeps saying, give me justice. Justify me, is the literal words. So we've got to put more flesh on this. I mean, this is, there is an ache to her prayer that I think a lot of us, as comfortable Americans, we don't experience, unless we're in Louisiana right now. To be the widow is to have no one to fight for us, to, to see corruption and not be able to ha have a way out. I mean, to be like the widows, to be like the folks in Louisiana who ha have no friends or family to help rebuild, you know, they, or they have no flood insurance. I say, give me justice. To be like our poor in Saratoga and Albany and, and really any urban area who live paycheck to paycheck and then get a parking ticket and then the fines just accumulate and then they get thrown in prison and they spend the rest of their lives never be able to get out from underneath the burden. Give me justice. That kind of thing. 
Or maybe you're more like the, the widow. You've experienced loss. God, why? I need help right here, right now, and I have no one else to bail me out. I'm at rock bottom. Justify me, God. Which is another way of saying, here's my case. Look at me. Can't you see me? Can't you see that I'm suffering? Can't you see that I deserve you, deserve you to act on my case right now? Now, I know if this is you and this is your story, and if it's not your story, it will be your story at some point because we all experience loss. That's, that's part of what it means to be human. But uh, this is when we get mad at God in the waiting, in the nagging, when we say, God, justify me, fix this now. In the words of the, the pop culture theologian Lex Luthor, <laughs> this is what he, he said, I learned a long time ago that if God is sovereign and all-powerful, he can't be good. Right? Or if God is good, he can't be all-sovereign and all-powerful because he didn't bail me out when I asked him to. That's, that's the kind of person this parable's for. Many people are saying, I've got nothing. I've been banging on heaven's door, and it's like God slammed it in my face. Right. It's C.S. Lewis when his, his wife died. Uh, and surprised by joy, he said, you know, you've got to talk really big about how great God is when he answers prayer. But in, in these moments, as I grieve my wife, it's like heaven's door has been slammed in my face. Justify me. Give me justice, Lord. It's Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm, I'm worn out from crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. That's why Jesus, I mean, at the end of the parable, he says, Christians are crying out to God day and night. This is, it's almost our default mode. That we should expect to, to have to cry, to, to be in these situations. God, bring justice, bring some sense of rightness to my world right now. And keep asking. See it? I mean, this is what it means to be a widow. And this is why I think Jesus uses the parable, because she's somebody we can empathize with. And it helps us because when you think about God's kingdom coming, a lot of us come as new believers in the faith with really high expectations of what God's going to do right now. I mean, theologians will call it overrealized eschatology, and it's just saying that we think that heaven should happen right here, right now in my world, that it should get better immediately. No delays. And there's, you'll find that teaching all over. If you believe right, you won't have to go through what the widow goes through. And Jesus is saying, no, this is, that's not how it works. So, we have the widow starting to feel it a little bit. Her only hope is this unrighteous judge. And this is the, the whole point of the parable. Listen to this guy. Because there's two commands. It's pray. You have to pray. You ought to. And listen to the unrighteous judge. He's that important. This is great. He's, 
This is how Jesus tells stories. He loves to use the people that we wouldn't want to make the heroes of our story. He uses the outcasts, the losers, the oppressed. He says, I want you to see that the, the hero of this story is a bad judge, and that's what's going to get you to pray. Right? So we've got to flesh this out, too. Think about it. What's a judge supposed to do? He's supposed to bring justice. And when somebody's life is falling apart and they have a claim against the law, the judge is there to do what is right, regardless of race, regardless of class, no matter what. They're just supposed to consider the facts and consider what the law says and uphold the law. And in a city, in Jesus' day, a judge would be, well, he's the 1%. He's, he's up here. He's the one who's important and influential. I mean, this is, the, this is the widow who, who has to cross the railroad tracks to go beg, if you put it that way. I mean, if you look at how he describes himself, you've got this judge. He's, he doesn't fear God, nor does he respect man. He doesn't care what God thinks, and he doesn't care what you think. And really, he doesn't like people. If you don't, if you don't respect people, you don't like them, which makes it really hard to actually care when somebody with a legitimate need comes begging and knocking on your door. So you have this judge who has no higher law than what he wants. It's all about me. He doesn't have any motivation for compassion. That's been completely taken away. Because what's going to motivate a judge to do the right thing? If he doesn't care about God or man, which means he, he just enjoys the power. And frankly, I mean, this is, this is kind of where we're at as a country. We're trying to figure out why we should be good if there is no God. Uh, this here is a Supreme Court justice. This will help fill this in. Oliver Wendell Holmes from the 1920s, somebody who sat on the court of law, um, who said this. He says, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different from that of a baboon or a grain of sand. Or he's put it another way. I know there's rattlesnakes in the world as well as me. And when I see a rattlesnake, I kill it whenever I get a chance. Because my, the only judgment is that they're not in the world that I want. And I just happen to be bigger than him. <laughs> he's, putting, he's putting flesh and culture. He's saying that if there is no God, if people are not made in the image of God, why should I care? Why should I hear your case over that of the, the chimpanzees that are going extinct in the rainforest? Or, or Freud. Freud was famously known as saying, you know, the famous psychologist, I found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine at all. not the kind of counselor you want to get help from. Or Plato. This is Western civilization. I'm just trying to show you the kind of person this judge has to be as the widow's begging. I mean, he would say things like, I mean, this is Plato, that certain races were destined to be slaves because they don't think like I think. It's just horrible. This is the kind of judge this widow 
is having to run to repeatedly. Because how do you convince somebody to get, give you justice who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care about man, who thinks you're no more important than a baboon? If you're even that high, maybe you're trash. It's the complete opposite of what the scriptures teach, that every human being is made in the image of God, that the widow matters simply by virtue of, of being made by God. And that's a reason that we're told to love our neighbor, because the way we treat our neighbors that reflects the way we understand who God is. And if, if I attack an image of you, for example, got, a, got your picture behind me on the big screen, you come in for the service and we're all laughing and pointing. Even though it's a picture, you take it personally because it's an image of you. An attack on the image of God is, is always seen in the scriptures as an attack on God himself. So how do you convince somebody to, to treat you with honor, respect, dignity, and value if, if he doesn't care? And the widow's only hope is to, to nag, to haunt, to make this guy's life miserable, to keep punching him in the face and say, I want, I need, justify me, justify me. Make sense of my suffering, at least give me this one thing. And so listen to what this guy says. So listen, this is what he says. Even though I don't care about God or respect other people, because she keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice. She won't beat me down. And now, did you hear it? Does that make you want to pray? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's comparing God to an unrighteous judge. That's what Jesus is doing, which makes us all uncomfortable. And to say that God is like, in some ways, like this unrighteous judge. I got you looking at the text again. I mean, I'm not saying God is unrighteous and he's unfair. And I know your theological radar is pinging. Because we read that this morning, that God is a judge who doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. And in fact, he loves to give the poor justice because they have no one else to fight for for them. And you, that the scriptures we read this morning intentionally, that God is the kind of judge, the kind of king that you want because he sees everyone as significant, even if you feel forgotten. And that when Jesus comes, he's bringing a world that will come with justice. And when he comes back, it's going to somehow justify all the suffering for all who put their faith in Christ. But what does Jesus mean? Why, why is he saying God is like this unrighteous judge? Why does Jesus want us to think about this? That we're supposed to be motivated by a guy who's bigoted, narrow-minded, and doesn't care about people. So this is point four, and this is the end here. So let me ask you this question. Do you want God to be like this? Someone you can nag a response out of. Someone who doesn't have the care, who doesn't have the compassion. It's like yelling at a locked door. And yet I know from experience when you're in the widow's situation, when you're, when you're the widow before being widowed, you just sit and wonder, God, will you justify me? Will you hear my request? 
Will your answer to prayer somehow bring me comfort and justify all my suffering? Or to make this light affliction, as Paul calls it, an eternal weight of glory. I mean, how do you find that in the moment? And so here it is. God is like this unrighteous judge. Because the only thing that will get God to fight for you is the fact that he delights in you for his sake. The only reason God answers our prayers is because he, he's pleased to do so. Because the only way you're ever going to get this unrighteous judge, this guy who's bad at his job, to do something is he's just got to want to do it because he wants to do it. And it's the same idea here that Jesus is getting us to think about while showing us that God is, even, is better than that judge. That our God is in the heavens, the psalm says. He does as he pleases. And if you look at verse 7, Jesus says, Will not God give justice? Will he not answer your heart cries to the elect? to his elect who, cry, who are crying out day and night. And I know that sounds horrible and narrow and that God's only going to help a select few. That's not what he means. Elect doesn't mean the best of the best. It just means um, people that God has claimed as his own. I mean, it's, it's grace in its rawest form. basically saying, will not God give justice? Will he not hear your prayers to those whom God loves simply because he loves them? Not because there's anything special about them. Not because you have such a good case or you've argued it so well. He answers prayer because he's claimed you in Christ. When Jesus is saying, will not God hear and answer your prayers for justice? simply because he's made loving you, protecting you, caring for you, and fighting for you his business. We're like the widow. We have, what kind of claims do you have to make to God that you should answer my prayer? God, I deserve your help. We could say that, but our selfishness would reveal otherwise. I mean, you can't bar how are you going to bargain with God with your good deeds? Or your piety and say, I suffer more than the next person. I mean, if God's help was dependent on my quality of character, the way I treat my neighbor, I'd be doomed. And you can't bargain with a judge when justice says, I, I shouldn't respond favorably to your case. I should tell you that you're going to get punishment, not justice. Well, that is justice. No, what God is, what Jesus is saying, this is astounding, it's, it's pure grace. He's saying that because God is like the unrighteous judge who loves you because he loves you, we can cry to him knowing that he hears our prayers and he will answer and he will act speedily. And it may not seem speedily to you, but when he comes, when Jesus returns, it's going to justify everything you've gone through, that first moment when he hugs you and greets you. That he does care. And I can prove it to you. Just look at the cross. So you got the judge of the earth, the king of kings, being judged on your behalf. He says, I don't care about all your cries for me to fix your life right now. I'm going to go to the cross and fix what's wrong with you internally. I'm going to fix your heart. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to give you justice right now. You don't have to wait 
for the last day of history, for, for your sin and evil to be crushed. It's going to be crushed in Christ. Jesus took our judgment on the cross to justify us. That's why that language is used all the way through the parable. That Jesus, the good king, the king your heart is longing for, the one who's going to fix all that is wrong with this world, was willing to be perceived as a bad judge and let you and I into his kingdom and hear our prayers. Do you see it? It's the only way to make sense of this kingdom, to make sense of this parable. I mean, think about it. If there was a video that showed up on, on the internet of a cop shooting somebody in the cold blood and there were witnesses to corroborate that there wasn't a setup, it was just somebody being shot in the back and then a judge said, I see what happened and I'm going to find that person not guilty. There'd be an outrage. There'd be fury. But that's the gospel. That we don't have anything to claim on God to say we should be in because we're, we're sinners. God lets us in because of the gospel. It's good news. God loved you so much he was willing to be perceived as a bad judge so that, so that he could hear your prayers. And step two is to bring you justice. It will come. And so look, when this gospel permeates your prayers and you start saying, justify me, it's going to change. Because I think what Jesus is trying to get us to see, and we'll talk about this more next week, that if, if God has already justified you in Christ, meaning he has fully accepted you as if you had always done the right thing, as if you had cared about God's kingdom more than anything else, if he loved you, so much to treat you as his choice possession. Um, it's going to change the way you pray. Because he loved you enough to die for you while you're an enemy. You know he loves you enough to tell you to wait and that he's got a good reason behind it. That's the motivation for prayer. That you can know that God, the righteous judge, became unrighteous so that you could be fully accepted and know that he will work it out in his time. And we're called to wait for that, that, that mountain, that great day <laughs> when all things sad will come untrue. Right. I'll end with this. We're running out of time here. I hope you heard Do not pray like the widow, <laughs> right? That, that's not the point of the, ser the sermon. That's not the point of Jesus' parable. It's not pray like the persistent widow. It is to keep praying, but it's saying, look at the unrighteous judge. Look at what your God has done and ask for help to trust him. Right. You remember Lot? This is in 17. This is the background. This guy in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's always, in my background, I've always heard sermons beating up on Lot because how could he determine and choose to live in the city because it's so wicked. Um, it's all about money. It was all about the bottom line. Of course, he, Lot doesn't have the best character. I mean, he, he was about to sacrifice his daughters 
instead of his guests. It was a pretty horrible story in Genesis 18. Let me just ask you this. How would you, how would you plead for Lot to get justice? And here's somebody who protected himself, was willing to let his daughters be um, abused, who, as far as we can tell from Genesis, was pretty, pretty obsessed with his business and being comfortable and success. How would you fight for him? Would you plead for him? <laughs> we have the, the story of Abraham. It's a scene where God says, tells Abraham that judgment's coming, that Sodom would be destroyed, and there's this great conversation between Abraham and God. As Abraham says, God, would you destroy this, this city if there were 50 good people, 50 righteous? You know, don't be mad. I'm going to ask you about 40, and then 25. And he just bargains and, and haggles God all the way down to 10. God, would you save this city? Would you, would you hold back your justice for 10 people? And of course, we know that only Lot and his family were saved. But you just think about it. If, if God saved Lot for Abraham's sake, who was a sinner, like how much more safe and secure are you as you are called <laughs> because of the gospel. Our plea for safety, for justice, is for Christ's sake, who is perfect. And that's the one you pray to. The God of the gospel who's big-hearted and patient, who says, now trust me. Let's pray. Well, Father, I ask, I know there are all of us, a lot of us here who have, well, we we understand what it's like to be the widow. And so I pray that as we see the good news that your kingdom has come and will come, I pray that you give us peace in the waiting. I pray for, pray for us to, to long for justice, but not to, to be so worried about our own cares and concerns that we forget that we have a God who cares, who collects our tears in a bottle, who suffered like us yet without sin so that, so that we might be justified. So may that good news sustain us and motivate us to pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.